Welcome to the second episode of Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm a scholar of food, gender, feminist, and tech history, and the author of the book, Ingredients for Revolution, a history of American feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses. Episode, we talked about what a feminist restaurant is. Today, we will be talking about feminist food and the big question of what makes food feminist. I'll be joined by two guests today, Dr. Emily Contois. She is the assistant professor of media studies at the University of Tulsa and the author of Diners, Dudes, and Diets, How Gender and Power Collide in Food, Media, and Culture from UNC Press 2020. Dr. Contois is the co-editor of Food Instagram Identity, Influence, and Negotiation. University of Illinois Press, 2022, Lazina Kish. Our second guest is Fazia Ishmael. Fazia has run Arwell Eats, a Somali supper club and research project in Bristol, England. She is also part of the Dakon Collective, a Somali feminist art collective in Bristol. Fazia's work brings together art, food, feminism, labor, refugee, and immigrant rights, and so much more. You can find the work of both of our guests across various media platforms, including food television and radio programming on networks such as NBC and the BBC. I'm so excited to have Emily and Fazia joining us. But first, a little bit of background on why we are discussing this topic. What is feminist food? I will also talk a bit about the history of feminist food in feminist restaurants of the United States and Canada, particularly from 1972 to 1989, and how it has changed, or has it, for feminist restaurants today. There are lots of ways that food and feminism connect. You can think about on the levels of labor. Who is cooking food? Who is buying food? Who carries the knowledge of cultural food traditions? Who is growing food? Who is cleaning up after dinner? How is this all gendered, raced, and classed, etc.? You can think of this through the lens of consumption. Who has access to what foods? Who eats meat? Who has access to certain ingredients? How is this all gendered, raced, and classed again? What is the role of disability? How is food distributed? How is food wrapped? How is food preserved? Discussions can also include eating disorders, breast milk, baby formula, hospital food, discussions of nutrition, discussions of food labels, food testing, and food research. Soil health, water usage, and environmental impact become feminist issues when we take an eco-feminist perspective and also think about migrant farm workers, toxicity, and environmental racism, and environmental sexism. We can also look at food media and think about who writes, creates, or produces cookbooks, food television, food magazines, blogs, radio, and podcasts. 
What is the role of social media and food? What about food porn and food Instagram? And there's so, so, so much more. Feminist food studies really helps us take a lot of the questions about food studies and brings a feminist lens and helps us think about how gender, sexual orientation, race, class, disability, age, religion, language, ethnicity, and more impact our relationships with food. To connect this episode to our last episode, I also promised to explain what feminist food meant for feminist restaurants. Back in 2011, when I first started my research on feminist restaurants, I thought these spaces connected to the feminist discourse of the cooking problem, the societal expectations that burdened women with the responsibility of domestic food production. Solutions proposed by feminist authors during the second half of the 20th century in the United States and Canada included buying pre-made foods rather than cooking, sharing housework responsibilities with male partners, requesting wages for housework, joining communes, including but not limited to separatist lesbian farming communities, and founding food cooperatives to share cooking responsibilities amongst groups of families. At the start of my research, I assumed that feminists during the 1970s and 1980s had founded feminist restaurants when they saw that, like previous women liberationists, such as Charlotte Perkins Gilman in the early 20th century, communal cooking could lift them from the drudgery of the kitchen. These restaurants challenged the common contemporary view of cooking as antithetical to women's liberation, and instead showed that the kitchen could in fact be a space for women's empowerment rather than an oppressive sphere. But how did feminist restaurants see their own food as connected to feminism? Feminist restaurants and cafes of the 1970s and 1980s in the United States and Canada acted as spaces that challenged the status quo around cooking and consumption through their creation of feminist food. Each restaurant and cafe defined feminist food differently based on the particular feminist ethics of the restaurant owners and operators. Depending on the restaurant, choice about how to make their food feminist revolved around vegetarian ethics, labor issues, cost and sourcing of products. By examining what was included on and banned from these restaurant menus, my work, especially chapter five of my book, shows the different parameters through which food could be labeled as feminist. Furthermore, feminist restaurants demonstrate how one could assert feminism within a business dedicated to food and centered on the kitchen, a space often labeled as a traditional place for women and the complex relationships that emerge therein. Choices surrounding which food to serve, how to serve it, and where to source it from either reaffirmed the financial and organizational choices founders made in designing and operating their restaurants or risked undermining the mission of the restaurant. The feminist restaurants of the 21st century continue to grapple with these questions. Now let's open up the conversation, and we're going to now welcome our first guest to the podcast, Dr. Emily Contois. Okay, let's open up the conversation. Thank you, Emily, so much for joining us here today. Do you mind introducing yourself, your name, your pronouns, if you wish, and a little bit about your work? 
your things. I'm Emily Contois. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I'm currently an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Tulsa. And so I'm really interested in the intersection of food and our bodies and ideas about health. And so my first book was all about dudes and masculinity and exactly that question of like, how do we make this idea of men in the mediated marketplace? Um, and then I'm just finished with Alex has an awesome chapter in it, an edited collection on food Instagram. Um, so that's some of my work. So for everyone listening, I totally recommend that you check out Emily's work. And we're going to be speaking about some of those projects later in this interview. But we're going to start with a small question to begin with. Um, what are the connections you see between food and feminism? So small here is a joke, a gigantic joke, because the connections between food and feminism are so many and so huge. Um, so for me, feminism is about access to power right? How do we make that equitable? How do we make that as equal as possible? How do we make, you know, every aspect, right, of our lives, this sort of inclusive, joyful community sort of experience. And so when it comes to food, like in some of my research, right, like that relationship of like a feminist food relationship with food has been a big thing that I've looked into. Diet culture gets in the way of that. Representations get in the way of that. Um, and so my early work, you know, as an undergraduate writing a thesis on the language of the dieting industry was really trying to find that sort of feminist community um, of like, how do we make sense of our bodies and who we are, who we want to be? And then that's expanded, right? To think about our entire food media scape. Who gets to make food media? Who gets to have attention in an attention economy? Um, who's subjugated? Who can, you know, who speaks? Who gets to speak? Um, so I think with food, right? Who makes it? Who sells it? Who represents it? There isn't an area of food that isn't connected to feminism or shouldn't be, right? Of like the kind of food futures that I want to imagine and to help as much as I can to make possible. And your work does so many different ways to connect food and gender. I'm wondering if you have a definition for yourself or for your own work about what is feminist food? So I think feminist food is joyful and inclusive and is about understanding how power flows and is really intentional about sharing it even when it's uncomfortable right like always finding ways um, to share power in and through food and within this topic of power and you mentioned this a bit in your intro you write about this concept of dude food can you define that for us in more detail and kind of compare and contrast that with your ideas of feminist food are they at odds What's the relationship between them? Uh, so I came to define dude food as comfort food, but with an edge of competitive destruction. And so David Sachs was, you know, a, a men's writer who, like, one of the ways he phrased this, right, was like, are you man enough to eat this shit, right? Like, that's this mm. sort of challenge that dude food puts down to men, right, as a way to prove your masculinity through how you eat um, and some of the rules, right, that you thwart in that process. So dude food is often... Um, purposefully exaggerated in its portion size and its nutritional content and its flavor profile, right? It'll be so spicy or really wonderfully greasy or, you know, so much bacon, right? It's going to purposefully exaggerate, push the boundaries that the dude, right, gets to slack off and do whatever he wants. And so when you extrapolate 
eight, sort of that dude logic from an individual dish, like a gigantic hamburger. Um, I think the image I often show when I'm doing book talks is this burger that's called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse Burger. So it's multiple patties and, you know, gigantic onion rings are thrown in there and bacon and cheese. And then it doesn't even have buns. It's like grilled cheese sandwiches on the top and bottom, right? So it's like purposefully embracing this sort of playful sense of excess, but one that's like going to have real limits, right? For individuals, for <laughs> communities, for food systems, for relationships between Global South and north as we think about how we eat and how we eat together. And so to eat like a dude, to eat whatever you want and push back against some of these, you know, sensible guidelines or recommendations, it creates a food future that isn't possible, right, for everybody mm. to partake in equally and healthfully and joyfully. And so dude food does butt up against, right, these imaginings we have of a feminist food future where everyone has enough to eat, where everyone um, gets to eat in a way that centers there's both health and pleasure and community and individual goals, right? That there's a way for all of that to be possible. And so dude food, like, is, is not the solution, right? It's not how we're going to get there at all. But I think, like, the dude identity was kind of interesting in that it gave some men some flexibility in how they performed masculinity, right? Like mm -hmm. the strictures of like a traditional or, you know, hegemonic masculinity that has these really strict boundaries, right? Of like how to be a man, how to look like a man, right? And so you're expected as a guy to have this voracious meat and potatoes appetite and to eat a ton and that the same way that women are often held to these unreasonable expectations for thinness and for having a restrained appetite, those can be, you know, controlling and constricting for men in a different way. Um, and so I think examining dude food through a feminist lens was a way to understand, again, like how does power, um, how is it a part of how food is marketed, how it's packaged, how we talk about it on food menus, um, how, you know, wait staff, right, thinks about who ordered the salad and who ordered the steak, right, that we see gender made and remade and unmade in all of these spaces in all these different ways. And as you're talking about dude food, right, a lot of really intense imagery comes to mind, right? We can really imagine like the grease dripping off of that burger, the over-the-top presentations, the drinks stacked with lots of extra ingredients on top. And uh, that kind of visual culture is such an interesting part of your work. And as you kind of touched on before, some of your other work deals with food and Instagram and kind of topics around food porn and such. Uh, so would you mind speaking a little bit about if you see food porn as a feminist topic and how or if you see Instagram food accounts as gendered and perhaps as a feminist issue? Yeah, so, so big question there. Oh, it's big. There's so much to it. And I think that's why it's so much fun. Um, so this book, Food Instagram, is one that I co-edited, you know, with my good friend and colleague Zenia Kish here at TU. Um, and food porn ended up being this sort of foundational concept that was coming up that I thought was really important as we were putting our intro together. But then also as you look at the 17 chapters across the book, it's a concept that multiple authors are working with in these really productive ways. And so we often think of food porn. Um as these sort of like seductive images of food, right? So the cheese pull where there's this ooey gooey cheese, right, being stretched in between or slicing into an egg and the yolk, right, has this sort of flowing quality over things, you know, oozy chocolate sauces, right? Like there's this, there's a definite sort of sensuality um, that is represented, that's evoked, that's sort of experienced even as you look at these images of food, that that's one 
layer of food porn. But like food studies scholars have been really interested for thinking about how food porn is representing food that is pornographic for its aspirational distance that it creates, right? That these are dishes that are so complex or ingredients that are so esoteric or platings that are just so beautiful caught by the camera that they are impossible, right? For the everyday person to imagine creating themselves. And in some cases, right, making it to the restaurant and consuming it yourself, right? Everything about it might be totally aspirational, ornamental, on the surface and far away from you. And so I find that aspect of it, right, something that a feminist understanding, right, can help us to tease apart these ideas about affluence, about what aspiration has to do with sort of the performance of class, um, of our hopes of upward mobility for some of us as we navigate the foodscape, but also this sense of exclusion, right, of like who belongs, who gets to partake in that part of food culture. But then as I kept working with this concept of food porn, I'd written this other article that was thinking about food pornification of labor on food mm. blogs. And so one of the aspects of food porn that makes it so aspirational, so perfect, um, is that it also gets rid of the work, right? You don't see someone doing all of the shopping or coming up with the recipe and testing it, right? How much labor goes into real good recipe testing. Um, all of the work that goes into actually making the dish, the actual labor, time, skill to style something in this beautiful way that has become this like Instagrammable codified style um, that a feminist analysis of food porn right remembers that labor right brings that effort um, forward to be acknowledged but also uh, you know to be critiqued like your chapter does such a good job of acknowledging how influencers who we often think of as this like privileged category right all this attention all these followers but that there is so much time and effort and emotional labor expected of influencers um, to manage their following to respond to all of their comments um, I think Casey Highsmith's chapter right also really talks about that but then also this expectation to continue continually produce content um, on Instagram. And so I think as we thought about food porn in a longer sense, as we thought about what food porn looked like in sort of food cinema and food film, what it looked like in the pages of glossy magazines, and then as we see it, um, you know, sort of jump onto blogs and then, you know, expand, proliferate, go even faster, more, right, as we think about how Instagram, right, really worked on this level um, of food porn becoming the dominant aesthetic and the dominant sort of expectation of what was being produced by the app. But then at the same time, um, we have another awesome chapter in our book that looks at how hashtag food porn is basically attached to like every image of food on the platform, right? Like it's almost meaningless. Um, so even as a hashtag, as a sort of organizing feature, it has very little meaning. But as a concept, there's still so much to it. And we haven't even talked about like the potential like pleasure aspects, right? That we could bring a feminist understanding to. Um, that as we think about, you know, the pornography of human beings, I think what feminist media studies scholars bring to thinking about food porn um, is this idea of like the disembodied nature of sort of pornography and of food porn, right? That with the Instagram aesthetic, we think about, you know, the toes in the beginning, right? As you did these overhead shots, you just see your adorable little feet. Or with food, it's often, right, this beautifully posed hand that's, you know, in the frame from the overhead shot. Um, but similarly, if we think about it more closely to pornography, this idea that just because something is produced perhaps by and for a male gaze doesn't mean there isn't a way to subvert that. 
doesn't mean that there isn't a way to still find pleasure within these spaces, as well as to have actually like feminist produced pornography and food porn that's trying to bring something different to the table, whether it's about the aesthetics or the representational quality or the conversations that it wants to make possible. So there are some food studies scholars who don't want us to use the word food porn, who think it's not a useful analytic and we should move past it, but I'm one of those still definitely carrying the flag for it. I think there's still so much left for us to digest and chew on and think with together. Yes, I would totally agree with you. You've raised so many amazing points around food porn that I think I would continue to be thinking about for hours after this interview. Um, And I mean, you've just had these two big book projects come out. So, you know, it's totally understandable if you're taking a break right now, but what new areas are you starting to dive into with your research? So with my first book, I was so interested in how over and over again, right, I was looking at how food media, brands, you know, different food companies and figures, how did they try to sell and reach men um, with food that was perceived as feminine? Mm. So I was interested, like, how do they sell diet sodas and yogurts and diet programs? How do they get more men to watch food television or to cook from cookbooks? Um, And repeatedly, the way that they attempt to do it is through sports, right? That you would see ads that were specifically placed during live sporting events. You would see retired, well-known athletes as the spokesman. And so there was always this layering, right? This understanding of athletics and of sports maintaining this like masculine symbolism. And so that's really expanded. Like I thought I was going to look at something that was sort of just at this intersection of like sports and food and gender, but it's expanded that like, I think what I'm interested in, what I'm looking at is what I'm tentatively calling like an athlete. How has this consumer message like an athlete infiltrated not just the gym space and sort of our our exercise, you know, sort of um, uh, whether it's a significant part of American culture or a particular enthusiasm that we see right now. Um, But I'm interested in how has that taken root all throughout our consumer culture? How are we being taught not just to work out and dress out, but to eat and hydrate and recover and think and perform like athletes in every part of our lives, right? This push um, to have this sort of elite performance at the exact same time that we're seeing precarity in our society, injustice and inequity, right? In healthcare, in education, in the job market, in the financial system, right? Like everything, right, is falling apart at the same time that you're being told, right? That you should be doing everything like an athlete and being excellent in this way that because we love sports, it's harder to sort of dive into that critical media literacy, you know, to call bullshit on the ads, right? Of like, ah, you shouldn't be telling me to do this, like, because it's wrapped up in sports. I'm really interested in how it creates um, this idea, right, of the level playing field and the idea that we should all be aspiring to these sorts of conditions and levels of performance. Um, so that's the biggest thing that I'm working on. So I have a chapter on Wheaties, like thinking about where this cereal exists. It's like part nutrition, part about athletes, and then part about like consumer culture and collecting. Um, So that's something I'm working on for a really cool edited collection that's going to look at that intersection between food studies and sports studies, which will be fun to be a part of. Wow, that is such an exciting project. And I can also think of all the like disability perspectives too around that, like an athlete perspective. Um, And I'm wondering if you're also drawing on some of your own experiences as a dancer too within that work. 
Yes. So that was like my first life, my first love, right? I trained as a ballet dancer since I was eight years old and then went to college. And so this idea of like having a body that was once an athlete's body, right? And now I am, you know, this 19th century anxiety of the brain worker, right? Of um, how our relationship to our bodies change when we are these, you know, sort of sedentary creatures um, as we make ideas and write books and, you know, do all of these other things. And so I am, I'm experimenting with more memoiristic writing that sort of like my relationship to my body and my sort of ideas of an athletic sort of presence. And then also my husband's, right? That he inspired, you know, so much of Diner Dudes and Diets that it was so satisfying to have men read that book and some of the other stuff I've written and been like, oh, you really got this. Like you explained, you were able to get at some of this, even from my position as a woman. And so to be able to play with sort of both of our stories, sort of through the narrative, like I'm really trying to write a different kind of book um, that has um, the person personal and the theoretical and sort of the evidence that we do so well as academics, but that argument isn't the only way we can make our point, even though that's like the thing that we've been taught to do. Um, so that's some of what I'm playing with there. And then I think the other thing I'm working on that like I would love your thoughts on too is that I'm writing this essay about how like yes I've done this kind of wild thing right and that I did two books in two years you know in this four-year period right like published you know two years apart and so I am so damn tired and so like my <laughs> food life right like of cooking and of like really you know taking pleasure in the labor of food like it completely fell away right for me to put that much intellectual work like I would just work as hard as I could and then you just needed something you could eat right away right you didn't have time. <laughs> Time to sort of be in the kitchen for an hour and have a lovely time with it. And so I'm playing with this essay of now that I'm, I've taken on this new role at my university to be the faculty in residence family. And so a big part of that was my hope to have this, you know, big, huge table so I can have students over for family dinners because I know the magic of the kinds of bonds we form around a table, around food, you know, in a group together. And so this desire that I didn't have to feed myself Right. I feel it start bubbling up in me to want to feed others. And mm. as a feminist, right, like I feel so many contradictions, right? I feel so ambivalent yeah. about that, that there is so much advice and expectation out there, right? For people who mother, for people who nurture, to feed others, and that we perform that responsibility as a part of expectations for femininity, for mothers. Um, but there isn't, right, this advice that is as loud of, like, how do we really feed ourselves, look after mm -hmm. ourselves? And so I'm feeling so frustrated with myself, right, that, like, I couldn't dig deep enough to do this for myself. And yet I'm finally kick this all back into gear because I want to nurture these students. I want them to be able to have that experience. And so this essay is looking at that, right, of, like, sort of going through um, – this advice that we have about how to feed and nurture others and the absence, right, of the advice for how we look after each other um, and ourselves, right, as the people doing the nurturing. And so it reminds me of like some of the research I read, you know, I was working exclusively on diet culture, like feminists, like as they were doing the research, they wanted to lose weight themselves or, you know, found themselves losing weight even as they were doing the research. And there were all these internal contradictions as we walk this feminist path. Um, mm -hmm. So those are all things I'm teasing out, right? Like it's such a complicated thing. Yeah, I think that for my own work, that kind of cooking question or the cooking problem has been prevalent throughout, right? This And looking at, especially from like the 60s until present day, 
of all these different activists, artists, scholars trying to deal with their own relationship to cooking and what it means for them as feminists. Do they like cooking? Do they not like cooking? The kind of self-doubt it casts, right? All those relationships of who they're cooking for. And so it's been quite interesting, right? Over the last 50, 60 years to see this question keep coming up so repeatedly and how to navigate all of that and the labor and the unpaid labor and you know, we see it both in comedy senses, the kind of uh, Judy Cipher's Why I Want a Wife kind of narratives yes, all I the way through, like, <laughs> even Betty Friedan kind of, you know, um, controversial figure. But, mm-hmm. you know, she writes also, you know, she's so well known for the feminine mystique, but she also writes later about her own relationship to cooking in later books, too, and how she enjoys it. And there's also a lot of feminist authors who really ground it in their own, like, religious or cultural practices, a lot of Jewish feminists writing about their connection. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think this is like both like something that we can see historically and at present time. And I mean, I myself in my own life don't have an answer to that question, but I'm so excited to read your work on it. I think all I have so far is that I think. Do, did you ever watch Sandra Lee Semi Homemade on the Food Network? I did not. Like I know, the, sorry. Oh my gosh! So Sandra Lee Semi Homemade is this Food Network show that like foodies, right, sort of look down their nose at um, because it's very much like the glamorizing Laura Shapiro wrote about as she was looking at you know the food culture, the convenience food culture of the fifties and sixties um, when it was sort of the food industry trying to convince women, right? They're like, well, if you made something out of a can or out of a box, like then you could add your special touch to it, right? And it was still cooking and it was still, you know, fancy food that you could feed people when you came over for entertaining, um, that it fit into all of that. And so she was kind of a part of that tradition um, where, you know, you would take something that was partially made and then you would add to it and make it better. And then you would have so much energy left over that she would give you this advice to have this like beautiful tablescape and like how you do the flower arrangements, how you could have a theme party. And like the older I get, the more I'm like, this is so genius. Like, I feel like this is what I'm capable of, right? Like that I can take this something from Trader Joe's and then I can add this to it and then I can make a side dish and then I have enough energy, right, to like want to do something pretty with the plates. Um, that I just think like there is, there's different ways to do this. And I think so much of the sort of slow food and good food and foodies and this whole food world that I've been in is that, you know, if you didn't buy it all at the farmer's market where you know your farmers and that you made it all from scratch and that you spent hours and hours doing it, that like if you don't do that, then it's not good enough, right? When like what's important about it is the love, right? It is the sharing of the food, the breaking of the bread, the commensality that happens, right? Like all the great food sociology we have of family meals, like it doesn't really matter from the social perspective if you picked up fast food and you eat it together around the table and talk about, you know, how everybody's day is and how everyone's doing. That like the food is and isn't, right? Sort of the central ingredient in what it means to get together and have food. Um, And so I guess I'm just, it's taken me so long, right? Like dive into food and then to come back out of it enough to shed some of that, that what it matters is that I feed these students things that I made with love and that we eat together and have a good time around. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I think that like tension will continue, especially kind of within like eco-feminist movements as well. We've seen that since like the 60s and 70s too and the kinds of pressures people feel. And there's this comic I really like um, back from the 70s, and it's called Adventures with Altman. It's supposed to be like short, short for alternative man. And basically, this like superhero figure comes and to this woman 
who is a housewife cooking and cleaning for her family. And he says, I will take you away from here, from this like domestic life. And he brings her to a commune and there's, you know, all the legumes and everything. And there's this promise of this life free from these kinds of uh, restraints within the nuclear family. And then one of the panels shows, you know, her taking care of all of the kids on the commune and cooking for even more people. And then the men are sitting around saying, oh, I can't help with the meal. I need to write my book about why sexism is bad in the home. And like all these different things, right? Of like the theory of being divorced from the practice. And she's like, oh, will someone now take me away from here? So there's this like ongoing kind of tension that I think we see over time of a lot of kind of food parity politics and also like not recognizing the ability of what you can make within the labor constraints that you have, not to mention all the gender divisions. So I I love all the different points that you brought up. Um, Are there any places you would like to direct listeners to look to for your work? Where can they find your books? Where can they follow you? Yeah, they're welcome to check out my website, emilycontois.com. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at emilycontois. And I would love to connect um, in both of my books. They're available wherever books are sold. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be part of this conversation. As we have discussed during this episode and the previous episode, there are numerous ways to approach food and feminism. This brings us to our next guest, Fazia Ishmael. She is a scholar, cook, and founder of ROL Eats, a platform for exploring politics, identity, and colonialism through East African food. ROL Eats started as a Somali separate club. Fazia has worked with a range of cultural institutions on exploring food and empire, including the London School of Economics, the Museum of London, the Serpentine Gallery, the Tate Modern, the National Trust, the Courtauld, Bristol Old Vic, Battersea Art Center, Watershed, and the Arnolfini. Her work has been published by the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery and Vitals. She has been featured on Observer Food Magazine, BBC Radio 4 Food Program, BBC Two, Oxford Symposium, Food and Cookery, Oxtails Podcast, Food 52, London Eater, Vice Munchies, Fiddles in Bristol 24-7. When not critically eating her way through life's messiness, she can be found plotting with her sister-in-arms and fellow pervasive media resident and Ayan Kilmi as part of the Dakan Collective, a Somali feminist art collective in Bristol. In this interview, we will be talking about many of these projects. Hey, thank you so much for being here. Can we just start off by you saying your full name and pronouns? I'm Fozia Ismail and I my pronouns are she and her. Awesome. Thank you, Fazia, so much for being here, especially with the time difference. Um, so I guess we can just jump right in. Um, so Fazia, what are some of the connections that you see between food and feminism? Um, well, for me, the food that I grew up with was cooked by my mom, but also it was handed down to her by her mom and a community of women. So I always think of um, 
yeah that it's for me it's definitely uh, there's something really lovely about that sharing of knowledge but also the kind of the way society looks at food expertise from women like my mum and and dismissing it I guess from certain community groups or you know dismissing the skill set involved you know because it's not done within I guess a professional capitalistic setting of a restaurant that exchanges food for money that almost that therefore it has no value in and of itself so I think there's a massive connection between food and feminism and the way in which women's labor is erased unless it's um exchanged for money wonderful and Kit, do you feel that your supper club um or self like the identified feminist supper club like combats some of those like misunderstandings or kind of sexist assumptions about like food and labor and expertise Yes, definitely. I think, well, I try to in in my work with the Supper Club, but also in my work with art institutions. So I work quite closely with a lot of, like, at the minute I'm working on two different drinks projects. That um, So I've been working with a group of Afghan refugee women who recently arrived to Bristol. Um, we're a sanctuary city, which is great. Um, so sanctuary cities are kind of, I guess they're cities that actively welcome in um, refugees and try and support refugees as opposed to kind of against this kind of over-pervading hostile environment we live in in the UK. Because I'm not sure if you're aware, but we are under very fascist um, conservative government in the UK. And we have been for the last, uh, for over 10 years. So they've actively been, there's been this, anti-immigration rhetoric there's been this anti-wokeness rhetoric there's been you know um it's been really difficult and I think for me working with refugee women has been really an important part of that resistance so and getting um so yeah we're making a tea syrup tomorrow but we've been working to try and produce a, a drink that is that can be sold it within a theater space so okay. if we produce we co-create it and then we sell it and i've done a similar project with young children uh in a, a kind of i guess a marginalized part of the city um and then taking their drinks into high-end art places or what are considered high-end art places so i'm really interested in subverting i guess subverting what uh those kind of normal forms of trading so how can we do mm. trading in different ways how can we do more ethical or circular looking at circular economies so the the you know if you're an art institution or you're a university you can use your buying power in different ways to support women that are making drinks locally you know rather than buying coca-cola <laughs> Definitely. And do you feel that there's something kind of special or unique about food that allows for this kind of um, circular economy and this kind of um, community building in your work? Yeah, definitely. Because it's really, it's not based on literacy for a start. So it means 
uh, you if you are newly arrived or you've got language issues everyone you know you, you can hospitality the hospitality industry tends to be one of those industries where people with maybe where english is a second language can fit into fairly easily but it's also a really hostile industry you know um it can be very ignorant it can be very exploitative of people who might not feel secure or feel precarious in their status their, whatever the status might be you know um in the country so i'm yeah i think it's really important to make those connections and for me it's fem it, it, you know my mum um i talk about the skill set she has as a cook but she couldn't read and write but she's still one of the brightest people i know so if we're looking at knowledge systems and knowledge practices why is it so based on literacy um and what does that say about our society yeah that's wonderful and you're bringing up so many key themes um and i'm wondering if with this kind of when you're speaking about food in many ways as this kind of vehicle of social change within your work um can you talk about some of the other ways that you've connected food, gender, race, and kind of this like national context within your work as well? Um, either yeah. in some of your like, yeah, sorry, I'll leave it to you there. <laughs> um, I guess it's it's really difficult for me to untangle those elements because there it is part of my identity. And so I don't feel... Um, so when I started the supper club, it was like, come try Somali food because everyone's bloody racist now suddenly it's like we're not welcome in our own country <laughs> you know in this kind of naive way um not naive but just thinking god people are ignorant about somali people what are one of the ways i could bridge this gap of ignorance and also weirdly for me it was that i found somali food to be at the same time really nurturing so it was a way of sustaining myself through what was uh, a kind of difficult, I guess emotionally difficult time, working out that you're suddenly, yes, racism's always existed, but now we have an actively racist, hostile government, you know? So it's a bit different um, with how it's being, the kind of implications on that in our everyday lives. Um, and so, yeah, I think I couldn't separate out the politics really from the personal. And I think it's interesting when people are asked to do that because it always comes from a place of, right, people, you know, who have a lot of power who can do that or who, you know, because it's, it's, it's easier to do that, right? It's easier mm -hmm. to just be like, this is just the commercial enterprise or exchange, mm -hmm. but without thinking about, all the extractive politics that comes with food and the food industry. Like it's easier to mm -hmm. just go and eat in a, in a restaurant and not think about that stuff. Um, like not think about the provenance of who's who picked your food or, you know, the kind of just the, I think just the fact that our whole world is built on kind of this exploitative extractive capitalist system, it's everywhere. And yet, the impact it has on certain people, particularly black women, I would say, or refugee women and 
you know, people that are the most, I, I would consider, or trans women, like these, you know, all of these, it, it, the impact it has on the most marginalized women in our society is, is huge, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, yeah, you, I, I think feminism, I, I don't think you can, I guess, split it off from our everyday practices, if that makes sense. I don't know. That's I feel like I'm waffling. <laughs> no, I think that totally makes sense. I think you said it so well. And for our listeners who may be in the UK or maybe in Canada or the United States or anywhere else, can you kind of paint a picture of the Supper Club, give a bit of a background, why you chose the name and mm. so forth? Yeah. So people can kind of picture it and maybe even yeah. someday visit. Yeah. So um, I started the Supper Club in 2016 it's in my home. There's a really nice light-filled space downstairs. Um, we extended the kitchen, and so it, we've got a table. We used to use trestle tables. We now have a table that sits about 14. And uh, we we would do, you know, some classic Somali dishes like sambusa, which is this quite samosa, uh, a samosa filled with, um, like lamb and coriander and onion. And then we'd also have a vegan uh, uh, samosa filled with um, sweet potato and coconut. And that would come with a traditional hot sauce called uh, bispas, which is like a hot, hot sauce on the side, which is a lovely yogurty coriander green chili thing. And then we would um, make, you know, some kind of main... Uh, it would either be a Somali stew, which would either be a vegan stew or a lamb. Again, lamb features a lot, <laughs> lamb stew, and then lovely cardamom-based puddings. So that could be like oh, wow. cardamom cake or cardamom ice cream, um, cardamom basbusa. Yeah, loads of cardamom donuts. So <laughs> cardamom features a lot in my pudding well a lot of the puddings because that's what my uh, they use cardamom a lot in puddings in somali culture so it's a really key spice um the atmosphere was always really kind of very chill bring your own wine or or drinks um come in and you know just share but always sharing there would always be a sharing element so we would have the sauces would be shared and the breads would be shared for example so and the salads would probably be on piled up so that it being kind of a homely environment but you have to kind of engage with your fellow supper club goers really um and that was really important to me that kind of sense of hospitality and everyone would dance at the end half the time or listen to music it was very relaxed and then my husband would be like we have to get people out of the house it is now <laughs> I just sit and chill. I let, you know, by the time like, <laughs> I was like, yeah. So, um, and we had people actually that met at the sub club that then became friends. So we had a lot nice. of people who, who would have moved to Bristol, didn't know anyone. And then they would come and attend. And we had some people that came and attended one of our earlier supper clubs. And then like two years later came back and it was like the same group. They were like, we met here. It's amazing. So cool. I was like, so I thought that was so lovely that we kind of fostered such a lovely atmosphere that new people who'd moved to the city or whatever could meet people. So we used to have a lot of people come on their own, you know, so it was very much a welcoming environment to anyone who fancied eat, trying some food. That's awesome. Oh, and can you talk about the history of the name 
or why you chose oh yes yeah Aruelo. so Aruelo eats so I chose Aruelo because she is a mythical queen I think she's actually real some she's semi-mythical she's probably based on a real woman who basically um kind of took over Somaliland and Somalia and brought all the tribes together under women's army so the story goes is when her husband died, um, she felt so angry that she was left out of the politics so of her um, tribe that she went off and set up her own women's enclave of, of other people, who women who had been left behind, so misfit women. So they set up their own little village and then that was attacked. And then from there, she kind of retaliated. And she's famous for castrating men. And um, so the story goes, so she's told in Somali mythology, no one calls their daughters Aruelo, but if I had a daughter, I would have definitely called her Aruelo because I think she's pretty awesome. I mean, she just, yeah, so she became a really powerful leader and queen. Um, and I guess she was very fierce and maybe it's not good to talk about the fact castrate. I mean, obviously it's wrong to castrate men, but also I really like that, there's this legendary figure who just basically went, women shall rule Somalia now and all men shall be out of the equation. And I think that's kind of extreme, but also a fantasy that I think, wow, wouldn't the world be quite amazing if that did actually happen? <laughs> if, we, if we just like, you know, had that level of power, but um, not, not if we did. I mean, obviously there's problems with how you wield power. So she was problematic as well, but... I felt like she was a figure that was forgotten. And also, I hate the idea that people view Somali women as really subjugated, as weak, as mm. because, you know, they might wear the hijab or are covered or whatever it is, whatever assumptions they make, as if we're silent. And actually, that's just not the case. That's just not the reality for a lot of women. Um, and so that's why I picked her, because I love her. Um, hold for representing misfit women in, in communities. Um, if Are you still doing this at Bird Club now with like COVID or is it on no, pause right now? Or? It's, it's basically on pause. So I have, I am working with different places to organize feasts. Um, so one thing we did is we, I organized Watershed is a lovely art house cinema. It's really, it's been going for 40 years. So they did this big, but they're also a massive art center in Bristol. They do a lot of interesting stuff at the intersection of creative technology and arts. And I was asked to curate a feast for 200 people. And so I worked with this wonderful woman called Kim Prado, who runs Haria. And we did, um, she, she works with women who are affected by modern slavery. So they're either women who, yeah, who've been touched by modern slavery in some way. Um, and then, you know, so we, these wonderful women created a feast and we worked with Haria and it was just beautiful and it was a vegan feast and just a lovely, gorgeous way to show, showcase kind of African cooking um, and the kind of sophistication of African cooking and the delicious tastes of vegan food when it's not fake plant-based not that i'm anti any of that fake plant-based stuff but i find it really interesting that people miss meat so rather than just cook a vegetable in a nice way with some spices dudes 
it's really good. Um, you know, the, there's this kind of encroachment of like supermarkets to sell people this, these kind of fake meat substitutes. Um, I don't know how I feel about that, but anyway, so we did this lovely vegan feast and what's lovely is it then puts money back into Haria, which are then able to support more women. And so I'm, yeah, it was wonderful to get that chance to work with a big art institution in that way. And I really hope more kind of um, universities or art institutions can think about how they organize collective gatherings. That sounds like such an amazing gathering. Um, do you think that then like looking to the future that that's kind of how your work will hopefully proceed of like doing more of those like kind of public gathering spaces rather than the at-home supper club? Yes, I think so, definitely. Um, I think it's really, um, yeah, I'm really excited by that. I'm really excited that people are starting to think about supply chains in a different way, the organisations, because everyone wants to be sustainable and eco, or but how does that manifest itself in reality, like in mm-hmm. for marginalised lives? I'm really interested in that because... It becomes such a debate of, I feel like a lot of the sustainability agenda is driven by white middle class people. And I kind of think, I, you know, how how can we think about it in terms of how do we, yeah, just support communities as well locally um, in those processes. So I... I you know, there's a lot of greenwashing, I think, that happens that kind of takes the politics away and makes a lot of people feel good about buying a really expensive cotton organic shirt that's made ethical, but then they're not really engaging with the brown and black folks in their communities either, you know, <laughs> who mm-hmm. get, whose families back home are really massively affected by climate change. So I'm really interested in that intersection of, okay, this is great. I think it's great that you're being ethical, but how are we doing it in a way that really includes the, the poorest people in our communities? Um, so, yeah, so I'm really interested in, in that. So I think if, gatherings are a good way of doing that. Collective gatherings are a good way of doing that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And if people are interested in learning more about your work, to see about like any future events you're putting on or some of your own writings and such, where should they look? Oh, they should definitely, I've got a feminist art collective now that I run and Arawello Eats is all being subsumed into that at some point. I've got two separate websites, but Arawello Eats is on the Duck Arms website. I would say look on www.duckarn.org. Um, and that is a Somali feminist art collective um, that I run with a lovely woman called Ayan Elmi. And we are looking at, you know, using food, sound, all of these aspects to try and do more of these kind of co- kind of collective, um, either feast-based gatherings or weaving or like things that are see- craft-based, whether that's food or making drinks or weaving together. So trying to do more of that. That's amazing. Um, And we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes and transcript as well. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us.
There are so many ways to connect the topics of feminism and food. I actually teach a class on food, gender, and environment at McGill University. To see the syllabus for that class with links to lots of articles and resources on these topics, see the link in the show notes or click on the syllabi tab at alexketchum.ca. For more information about Fozzie and Emily, please see the links in our show notes and transcript. Feminist Ingredients for Revolution, a food and queer history podcast, will continue next week. Please follow the podcast to be notified of new updates. All transcripts are available at thefeministrestaurantproject.com. My book, Ingredients for Revolution, A History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses, is coming out fall 2022 from Concordia University Press. You can receive 20% off pre-orders with the discount code KETCHEM20. I've included the link in the show notes and transcript. An open access version will be released a bit later. I'm filled with so much gratitude for being able to create this podcast. Thank you to my co-producer, Sadie Couture, for your editing assistance. Thank you to Sari Nandy for proofreading the transcripts. Music by Tyler Antoine. Thank you to Shirk for the Insight Grant, which supports making my scholarship available in more accessible formats. And of course, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.